0: Welcome to Murder Minute. Before we begin today's episode, we have an urgent announcement. The state of Texas is scheduled to execute an innocent man on November 20th, 2019. Stacy Stites was murdered in April of 1996. Nearly one year later, sheriffs arrested a 29 year old black man named Rodney Reed. He was charged with capital murder, citing DNA evidence matching Reed's DNA to a small amount of sperm found inside her body. Prosecutors successfully argued that this proved that Reed was responsible for her brutal sexual assault and murder. Rodney has steadfastly maintained his innocence. No evidence exists that Rodney had anything to do with Stacy's death. Rodney was in a consensual relationship with Stacy, and the only DNA of Rodney's that was found was from this consensual relationship. The prosecution, citing the DNA, persuaded an all-white jury of his guilt. Rodney was convicted and sentenced to die by lethal injection. Currently, he is scheduled to die in just a few days, on Wednesday, November 20th. The original suspect in the case was Stacy's fiance, Jimmy Fennel, a police officer with a history of violence against women. After the murder of Stacy, Fennel kidnapped a woman and sexually assaulted her while on duty as a police officer. He was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison, despite sworn affidavits from witnesses establishing that Jimmy Fennel had threatened to kill Stacy before and that he subsequently confessed to the crime. And compelling expert testimony establishing Rodney Reed's innocence, all requests to evaluate new evidence have been unsuccessful. The governor of the state of Texas, Greg Abbott, is the only person who can grant a stay of execution. We would like to ask our listeners, who aren't familiar with the Rodney Reed case, To visit freerodneyreed.com, examine the facts, and if you feel as we do that Rodney Reed was wrongly convicted, sign the petition, call a representative, or send a clemency letter before it's too late. That's freerodneyreed.com. F R E E R O D N E Y R E E D.com. Thank you for your time. Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, Lena and Tommy Peterson. But first, your true crime headlines. A 59-year-old Pennsylvania man was killed in his home, and now a 14-year-old girl is charged with his murder. Police responded to the home of Albert Chernoff after a call from a neighbor. They found Chernoff naked and partially tied to his bed with a large head wound and several lashes on his chest. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Chernoff was well known in the Philadelphia area for his dedication to animal rescue. He had once been interviewed for a documentary called The Cat Rescuers, and after his death, the documentary's creator shared a video clip of Chernoff showing off his cat-themed tattoos, calling Chernoff a gracious soul, and praising his kindness. On the day of his murder, witnesses saw a female leaving Chernoff's property before police arrived. That female suspect was also captured on surveillance video from inside Chernoff's home, which was released by police. The 14-year-old suspect turned herself in to Philadelphia police, accompanied by her mother and two attorneys. She is being held in juvenile detention until her next court appearance, which is scheduled for later this month. A spokeswoman for the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office said that officials have not yet decided whether to try the girl in juvenile or adult court. 37 years after a Connecticut woman was killed by a blow to the head from an axe, her husband has been charged with her murder. 67-year-old James Krausnick Jr. was arrested and charged with second-degree murder for the 1982 slaying of his wife, Kathleen. At the time, he told police that he had returned home from work and found his wife dead in their bed with an axe in her skull. That axe, which had been taken from the family's garage, had been wiped clean of fingerprints. Police initially suspected that an intruder had killed Kathleen due to a window that had been broken from the outside. The couple's three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Sarah, was at home with her mother that day and told police that she had seen a bad man in her parents' bedroom. No suspect was ever identified, and the case grew cold. Investigators reopened the case in 2016, this time with assistance from the FBI. They did not identify specific evidence that led them to charge Krausnek, but instead pointed to a variety of evidence, including the timeline of events and DNA. James Krausnick was accompanied by his daughter, Sarah, and his wife, Sharon, as he entered his plea of not guilty. He was released on bail and will be back in court in January. He maintains his innocence. A 21-year-old Atlanta College student was found dead a week after being reported missing, and her roommate and her roommate's boyfriend are now charged with her murder. According to court documents, Alexis was killed after getting into a fight with her roommate, Jordan Jones, at their off-campus apartment in the early morning hours of October 31st. Jones' boyfriend, Baron Brantley, also jumped into the fight, and he is believed to have choked Alexis to death. The couple then placed Alexis' body in a plastic bin and dumped it in the woods at an Atlanta-area park. Days before she disappeared, Alexis went to Grady Memorial Hospital in downtown Atlanta to file a police report which alleged that Brantley sexually assaulted her. That report listed Jones as a witness. Brantley and Jones, both 21, were each arrested and charged with felony murder. Both are being held without bond, and it was unknown if either had an attorney. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Lena and Tommy Peterson. But first, a quick break. Have you ever looked at the back of your lotions and potions and thought, what are all these chemicals and why am I putting them on my body? Does aluminum really belong in my armpits? It's time to go native. Native creates safe, simple, effective products that people use in the bathroom every day, with trusted ingredients that you can actually recognize, like coconut oil, shea butter, and tapioca starch. Choose from a wide variety of enticing scents for men and women, like coconut and vanilla, their most popular scent, cucumber and mint, eucalyptus and mint, and my favorite, lavender and rose. Plus, you can pumpkin spice things up with limited-edition seasonal scents throughout the year. Native also offers an unscented and baking soda-free formula for those with extra sensitivities. And with no animal testing, Native isn't just good for your body, it's good for everybody. Making the switch to natural no longer has to mean sacrificing on effectiveness. Get the natural deodorant. That actually works. Go native. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code MM during checkout. Try it risk-free and with free returns and exchanges in the United States. That's N-A-T-I-V-E-D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T dot com. Promo code MM. Take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. If you're like me, your health and beauty routine is an important part of your everyday life. And it's not just about looking fabulous and keeping fit. For me, self-care is a ritual. A moment in my busy day when I get to relax, take a break, and treat myself to a little bit of self-love. So I'm always on the hunt for quality new beauty products to mix it up and keep my routine fun without breaking the bank. That's why I subscribe to Fun. FabFitFun. Fun is self-care made simple. Boxes are delivered straight to your door, so I don't have to find time in my busy day to go shopping when I could be enjoying a bubble bath. And these aren't just samples. Each seasonal box comes with 8 to 10 full-size beauty, fitness, home, and wellness products from your favorite brands. A $200 value for the luxurious VIP price of just $49.99. Just visit fabfitfun.com and curate your own box. And if you want more beauty for your buck, become a member and get up to 70% off exclusive products. My favorites in this month's box are the Dry Bar Prep Rally Detangler, the Coffee Body Scrub, and the appropriately named Yoga calm and clean lavender body wash. Give me anything coffee and lavender, and I'm in heaven. And guys, if you're wondering what to get your lady for the holidays, FabFitFun will help you treat your special someone by sending them an e-gift card so that they can customize their own box and experience the joy of discovery all year long. For $10 off your first box, visit www.fabfitfun.com and use the code MURDERMINUTE. That's $200 worth of full size beauty, fitness, and lifestyle products for just $39.99. Shipping is free. Treat yourself to the gift that keeps on giving. Visit fabfitfun.com and use the promo code MURDERMINUTE. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the tragic story of Lena and Tommy Peterson. In 1902, in Lee Township, just north of Des Moines, Iowa, on the southwest corner of East Madison and East 14th Street, sat the modest two-story frame home of the Peterson family. Peter Peterson was born in Sweden, in 1844, and had immigrated to the United States in 1867 at age 23. He soon married Mary Hoffman, who was born in Iowa in 1849, and the couple went on to have seven children. The Peterson family were hard-working dairy farmers, religious, and well-respected in the community. Friends and neighbors described Peter as steady, and Mary as a quiet and unassuming, devout Methodist. In 1902, the Peterson's oldest child, 27-year-old Harry T. Peterson, was married to Gertrude Ethling and moved to Sailor Township. But still living at home were 26-year-old Annette, called Nettie, 23-year-old Willis, 22-year-old Laura Bell, 19-year-old Martha Merriam, and the two youngest, 15-year-old Mary Magdalene, who everyone called Lena, and 13-year-old Thomas Hoffman, called Tommy. Lena was tall for her age, bright, witty, pretty, and popular among her friends at school. Lena was planning to study literature at Highland Park College. Tommy was the baby of the family, and was Peter Peterson's favorite son. And Peter made no secret of this. Every Sunday, Lena and Tommy Peterson followed a strict schedule enforced by their devoutly religious mother. In the morning, they attended services at Highland Park Methodist Episcopal Church, almost a mile and a half walk southwest of their home. Then in the afternoon, They went to service at Union Mission in nearby Grandview and in the evening walked back again to their home church. On Sunday, April 13, 1902, Lena and Tommy began their usual Sunday ritual, attending church in the morning and in the afternoon. That evening, Lena and Tommy returned to Highland Park Methodist Episcopal Church as usual. Some Sundays, they cut across the fields, but that night, they took the road. When service ended at 9 p.m., Lena and Tommy headed home. But first, they stopped at the Billy Waters restaurant for a treat, bananas and coconut candy. At around 9.30 p.m., Lena and Tommy were getting close to home, but they would never arrive. 16-year-old Fred Turby was also at church service that night and left around the same time at 9 p.m. As he turned off of Madison, making his way home, he heard three screams. It sounded like some young people just fooling around. So Fred continued home. Soon after, sometime between 9.30 and 10 p.m., 22-year-old Ralph Peck was driving his girlfriend, 18-year-old Noma Mary Spear, home to her parents' house. When Ralph turned his buggy on Madison and passed the Peterson farm, Noma put her hand up for Ralph to stop. She heard something. It sounded like a cat growling. But when Ralph halted the horses, there was silence. As they pulled away, the noise came again. Noma was scared. Something was wrong. Ralph Peck gave the horses full rein, and the young couple rushed to Noma's Aunt Lizzie and Uncle Wesley's house, which was closer than Noma's home. There, Noma and her Aunt Lizzie bolted the doors and waited, while Wesley Day and Ralph Peck drove the buggy to round up neighbors Albert B. Caldwell, Dan Carey, and Mike Quinn to investigate. Ralph Peck led the group to the location where he and Noma had heard the strange sounds and the men fanned out to search in the darkness. Here it is! Someone has been murdered! Wesley Day cried out. Face down, in a shallow ditch on the north side of the road, about three feet from a telephone pole, was a young man, bloody and beaten unconscious. His tangled hair was matted with blood, but he was moaning. They turned him over, but his face was so disfigured that none of the men recognized him. Nearby on the grass and the roadway, A 20-foot trail of blood showed a fierce struggle, where the young man had been dragged from the middle of the street to the ditch. As Ralph Peck crossed the road to turn the horse and buggy around and go for help, he cried out. For God's sake, come here. Here's another body lying in the ditch on this side. The men rushed over with their lanterns. There, in a three-foot ditch, was the body of a young woman. Her clothing was disheveled and her hat rested on the edge of the ditch. Dan Carey recognized the girl immediately. It was Lena Peterson. When he remembered that he had seen the brother and sister pass his house earlier that day, he realized that the young man barely clinging to life on the other side of the road was Tommy. Tommy. Michael Quinn then rode to notify Dr. William Beck, who then fetched Dr. Woods, and the two doctors rushed to the scene. Dr. Woods grasped Lena's head to raise it, but her skull was so badly broken that his fingers went through to her brain. Dr. William Beck was the Peterson's family physician, so he and Wesley Day went to give the family the terrible news. Peter Peterson was asleep when he was roused by a knock at the door. When they informed Peter Peterson that his two youngest children had been murdered, he screamed, Murdered! Murdered! My God! And in sight of our home! His wife, Mary Peterson, looked as though she were about to faint, and then... Became strangely calm. The two men asked Peter to get dressed and come with them. The Des Moines leader reported that when Peter Peterson arrived at the scene and saw the bodies of Lena and Tommy, he was seized with, quote, violent convulsions and had to be restrained as he cried, My God, my God, my Tommy, my darling boy, murdered. Oh, doctor, you cannot mean it. This is some horrible nightmare. You're joking. Why, it's only been a short time since he went away so happy. I cannot believe they have killed my boy. Tommy groaned as he was placed in an ambulance and rushed to Mercy Hospital. But just half a mile down the road, 13-year-old Tommy Peterson died, laying beside the body of his 15-year-old sister, Lena. Peter Peterson told the ambulance to drive to the undertaker. The next morning, the Peterson's hired hand, James Conley, accompanied detectives, the sheriff, and the Des Moines police to look over the fields next to the road where Lena and Tommy were found. In daylight, the murder scene revealed itself. On the north side of the road, where Tommy was found, a small depression was filled with blood, brains, and tufts of hair. On the other side of the road, in the ditch where Lena was killed, long strands of hair torn out by their roots were intertwined with grass and matted with brains and dirt. Tracks from two people led south away from the scene. One set of footprints were that of a small shoe or boot, the other of an average size, perhaps a nine or ten. Authorities followed the trail as it cut through the oat field, separated around the swamp, and joined together again, then nothing. As detectives looked for clues on the scene, Dr. William Beck and Dr. M. M. Smith examined the bodies at the funeral home. Tommy had been hit so hard on the back of his head that three or four fingers could be placed inside the fracture. His body had been pummeled, his collarbone was broken, his jaw was crushed, and the wounds were rough and jagged, as though he had been beaten with a brick. The undertaker washed Lena's long, blood-matted hair. Once clean and dry... The full extent of the brutality inflicted on her was visible. Lena had been struck at least 12 times in the head. They also reported that her vaginal cavity was badly lacerated, discharging blood and a slimy substance. The coroner, William Beck, issued a statement that Lena Peterson had been raped and was murdered so that she couldn't tell. And that Tommy was killed trying to protect his sister's honor. The community was in shock. Farmers left their fields and traveled to the Petersons to extend their condolences and help the family. Lena and Tommy's classmates draped their now vacant desks with flowers and the two schools were dismissed classes were also dismissed at Highland Park College, where the students were so excited and upset that they walked in large numbers to the murder scene, offering to aid investigators in their search. When hundreds gathered at the undertaker to view the remains, mortician Ezra Sulliver was forced to close and lock the doors, letting only friends and relatives pass. The bodies of Lena and Tommy were then transported home to the Peterson house. Mary Peterson sat calmly between the two caskets, Lena on her left and Tommy on her right. "'It was only last night that they went away smiling and happy with their mother's blessing,' she said, touching the coffins. "'It was last night, too. They came to me cold in death. "'It is the Lord's will,' And his be done but shock and sorrow would soon turn to anger as the community looked for someone to blame someone who was different an outsider the press encouraged by law enforcement focused on the black coal miners who rode streetcars from Des Moines to Highland Park and then walked on north to the coal camps Quote, the nature of the crime caused the conclusion to be reached that it was the work of Negroes, the Des Moines daily leader wrote, although the police are not proceeding on that theory alone. With Sunday off, they reasoned many of them would have been returning from the city at the time of the murders. Immediately, a witch hunt for black suspects began. On the morning of Monday, April 14th, a 32 year old miner, John Hutchinson, a 5 foot 11 inch, 175 pound black man with a mustache described by the press as being, quote, rather good looking, walked past the Highland Park fire station. A fireman noticed him and thought that Hutchinson looked, quote, apprehensive and cautious as he boarded a streetcar to Des Moines. He notified police there, and Hutchinson was arrested. The Des Moines Daily News claimed that Hutchinson's shoes seemed to match one of the tracks of the murder scene, that he had blood on his shoes and overcoat, and that a button from female underwear was found under the flap of his heel. When word spread, that a black suspect was in custody being questioned, a mob of angry whites gathered around the jail, threatening lynching. The Des Moines Daily News reported that, quote, Negroes were greatly wrought up by threats and that 75 excited and restless black men had, too, gathered near the jail at the saloon. The Daily News reported... It is stated that a large number of Negroes are still armed and that pockets which bulge in a suspicious way are frequently noticed. All of the men seem to be peaceably disposed, but it is thought that at a moment's notice, enough armed Negroes would appear to precipitate a race war. In response, the mayor, James M. Brenton, forbade pawnshops from selling weapons or ammunition but only to black men. The yelling, agitated crowd outside terrified the 25 prisoners being held inside the jail. Jailer James Shortell, armed with a Winchester, stood guard at their cells and declared that he was prepared to lay down his life that, quote, the majesty of the law might be enforced. The Des Moines Daily News reported that at 8.30 p.m., Mayor Brenton addressed the crowd from the jail. Boys, I ask you in the name of the law and order to go quietly away and not stand here this way. You may incite a riot. There's no one in jail charged with any crime. A voice yelled out from the crowd, cursing at him. The mayor replied, If it wasn't for this crowd, I'd trim you up where you stand. Boys, I ask you to go away from here, and I'll tend to this sucker when I catch him on the street. Mayor Brenton ordered the streets patrolled from 6 till midnight and issued instructions to disperse any gatherings near the jail, quote, Regardless of color or previous condition of servitude. Weapons were confiscated. A few arrests were made, and Mayor Brenton detained the man who cursed him. When Mary Peterson heard that a lynch mob had formed, she dropped to her knees and, holding her Bible, prayed that, quote, the men might repent before it was everlastingly too late, and asked God to have pity on and forgive the killer. Lena and Tommy's minister... H.V. Adams told reporters, It makes my blood boil to think of the crime. I hope, though, that calm deliberation will result and that the law will be allowed to take its course. The next morning, the crowds at the jail had dispersed. Detectives interrogated John Hutchinson, but he maintained his innocence, insisting that the blood on his coat was from hunting small game. Hutchinson had an alibi. Highland Park liveryman John Matthews told police that Hutchinson came to his barn at 8 p.m. Sunday night to be driven to Marcusville and that the two were together at the time of Lena and Tommy's murder. He added that Hutchinson was a man of good repute. Hutchinson's white co-workers came forward in agreement. Police then decided to perform a microscopical examination of the blood on Hutchinson's coat. They concluded that it was animal blood, and Hutchinson was released. Police then set their sights on two black men who were reported riding a freight train east. They were arrested and interrogated, but released when police admitted that they were detained only because they looked suspicious. When two black men whose, quote, faces and actions according to the Cedar Rapids Republican indicated that they belong to the criminal class were noticed at Shellsburg, they too were arrested. One man's coat had blood stains. When they, like Hutchinson's, were determined to be animal blood, authorities released the men on the outskirts of town, but swore to keep an eye on them because they were undoubtedly suspicious characters. Farmers began to claim that chickens, meat, vegetables, and fruit were being stolen from their land, and asked the sheriff to urge the mine operators to stop using, quote, Negro labor because they claimed the average character of the colored laborer was bad, and many were ex-convicts an accusation they likely read in the Des Moines Daily Leader which editorialized quote many of these negro miners are reported to have done time in southern penitentiaries before being brought north by the mine bosses the daily leader however acknowledged that many black citizens were estimable men and women who were welcomed by the community but noted quote it is the special duty of the colored people of the city to join in seeking the killer out. This has been Murder Minute. Next week, part two of the story of Lena and Tommy Peterson. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Murder Minute.